and it is my joy to call my friend uh, Grant Del Biggio to come, and he's going to be opening God's Word with us. Um, if you're new or just uh, joining us for the first time maybe at Summit, we're beginning a series on the Beatitudes, uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the very intro to it, and we'll be going over that through the summer. So this is part three, and Grant, come on up. Good morning. You know, uh, it is incredibly good to be in God's house with you together and to worship, to open God's word together. And we, as uh, Pastor Dave said, will be continuing in this series on the Beatitudes, and I will be looking at the second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I wanted to, as I begin, read uh, for context the first three verses uh, in Matthew 5, looking up to verse 4. Hear God's word. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. May God bless the reading of his word. At first blush, this can seem like a contradictory statement. Uh, great news when you mourn. How fortunate for you when you suffer. John Stott drew attention to this paradox by even suggesting that you could interpret this verse, happy are the unhappy. Really? Who really wants to mourn? This is generally not how the world sees things. As Pastor Dave suggested in the introductory message to this series, we all are naturally attracted to the good life. Eat, drink, and be merry. Seek good times. That's really the world's message. I seem to recall that our high school yearbook, that was a little while ago, uh, um, actually had this quote on the front of the yearbook. We're here for a good time, not a long time, so have a good time, because the sun can't shine every day. Of course, that was by the band Trooper, and it went on to say, oh, isn't it a pity? Every year has its share of tears. Every now and then, it's got to rain. I wasn't on the yearbook committee, <laughs> and I didn't choose that quote, but I did think it summed up a way of thinking, a way of looking at the world. Avoid the bad times. Live for the good times. And as we've been under these trying times with the threat of COVID, uh, threat of illness to ourselves or our loved ones under the restrictions required to try and battle this. It's been a tough, tough time. And as we move into this period where more and more people are vaccinated, there's, I think, a lot of anticipation and a some people are predicting that we're heading towards the Roaring Twenties again, that period after World War I when 
the war was over and people were ready for celebration, for partying, for excesses. All this to say we are not particularly attracted towards suffering and mourning. And for some context, Jesus, as he went up on that mountainside, he was going to deliver this great discourse. He was delivering it to a people that had been occupied by Roman forces. They were, they were pretty sick of the Romans being around, of their rule and their taxation. Their hope, not surprisingly, was that he was going to announce a revolution, an earthly kingdom that would take and overthrow the Romans. Then there would be good times. And it is to this crowd that Jesus delivers his most profound and direct message. It is at first a little confusing and quite an unsettling message. They might have been asking, do I have to live up to these beatitudes, to these standards, if I want to enter Kent at the kingdom of heaven? But it soon becomes clear he wants to challenge their assumptions, that he wants to open their eyes and open our eyes, that we would see this is a spiritual kingdom he's talking about, a kingdom of the heart with new motives, and a totally new way of being. Michael J. Wilkins describes it this way. The Beatitudes are a radically bold statement of Jesus' intent to establish the kingdom of heaven on earth, which will bring true peace and freedom to all who dare to follow him as disciples. Jesus I thought this is a good illustration. Jesus wants to plant his flag in enemy territory. And it's, that enemy territory is not just out there. It can be in here. It resides here in my heart. So he's going to tell us what it looks like when that flag is planted. What a life responding to grace looks like. And here's the good news. He's not giving us another series of required standards that we have to meet to, to meet God's approval. Wilkins goes on to point out that if that were the case, they would not be much different than the rigorous, rigorous demands for purity found among the Jewish leaders, and they would lead to the same kind of religious hypocrisy that Jesus condemns. Instead, they provided guidelines for the kind of life God intends to produce in his disciples. The only requirement, as Pastor Colton pointed out so nicely last week, was that we realize we need God and that we become as little children in accepting his kingdom. Now, on that mountainside, not everyone was prepared to do that. There were those that walked away they said perhaps something like this, oh, he can stuff his kingdom. What's that going to do for me? How's that going to get rid of the Romans? I will be the captain of my heart. But there were those who stayed behind. And to them came great blessing. Yes, some tribulation, but also great comfort and joy. 
So as I try to unpack this passage this morning, I will attempt to answer three questions. First of all, why do we mourn in the first place? Secondly, how can we be blessed when we mourn? And thirdly, what is this promise of comfort? So why do we mourn in the first place? Mourning is considered by the medical and counseling community as a natural response and a healthy response to losing something we value. It could be a loved one through conflict or through death, maybe the loss of a job or some opportunity in life. Maybe even a pet becomes, or a person we know becomes very ill. But the deepest mourning is always associated with loss of relationship. God has made us as deeply relational beings. Perhaps even now, some of you are going through a period of mourning. Jesus cares so much about our mourning, and he wants us to be the hands and feet to mourn with those who mourn. Mourning can be good for us. Coming to terms with something that we've lost, so in time, we can move forward. And that timing is different for everyone. It can't be rushed. So helpful mourning can be a way in which we let go of something so we are able to reinvest in something else. It allows us to shift to the new reality. Mourning can lead to a change of heart. I will come back to that later. I think it is fair to say that we mourn over in our lives. We mourn over and over again, ultimately because of sin, either directly or indirectly. Yet since Adam's fall, we have had strife and we have learned that we should expect death. Sometimes we sin because of others. We love at best as flawed human beings. And at worst, our love can turn to possessiveness, to mistrust, to selfishness, to unforgiving hearts. Our parents, even if they love Jesus, will have failed us at times. And any of you who are parents know that you, at times, will fail your children. Our friends may at times disappoint us, and our enemies may attack us. The truth is we live in a broken, sinful world. And, you know, it's often so much easier to see the sin in others than to see the sin within. Sometimes we mourn because of the direct consequences of our own sin. James points this out in James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from desires that battle within? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have, because you do not ask. You do not ask God. We all have experienced the negative consequences 
of our own sin, of speaking lies, of coveting things, of not honoring others, not forgiving. Yes, we are victims of sin, but we are also agents of sin. Our hearts are agents of sin, and that is where this spiritual kingdom can intervene. So why do we mourn? We mourn when we lose something we value. We mourn because we live in a world that is broken and need of restoration. And whether we realize it or not, we mourn because Adam and Eve reached for that forbidden fruit. They overreached. They were overreaching because they were seeking the knowledge of good and evil. They were wanting to put themselves in the place of God. Our deepest mourning comes from loss of relationship, and something was lost back there in the garden. That deep, trusting, worshipful relationship, that intimate relationship with our Creator was lost. And we are trapped in this same cycle of overreaching, of not putting God in his rightful place. We seek power, money, sex, material goods, all sorts of things to try and fill our world up and make us feel powerful. We look for lasting security and significance in things that can offer neither. And so we mourn. Second point and second question, how can we be blessed when we mourn? Well, I think the answer lies in both what we are mourning about and who we are mourning with. The passage that, uh, from Isaiah that Jesus quotes at the very onset of his ministry gives us some direction here. Into this broken, hurting world enters Jesus, proclaiming the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, for, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. Jesus has great compassion for those who mourn. He surely understands better than anyone the consequences of sin entering this world, that it results in brokenhearted people, people imprisoned by darkness, people who need a savior, a rescuer. The question is then again, who, to whom do we direct our mournful hearts? Do we ignore Christ's consolation and just feel sorry for ourselves, looking to the world to soothe us, to entertain us, maybe to acknowledge our achievements so we can feel better about ourselves? Do we turn the other way instead of out to the world looking for it? Do we just turn inwards? We isolate ourselves and we push away those, even in Christ, who may come to help. In both those scenarios, it's about us. Or 
do we acknowledge our brokenness to Jesus? Jesus is telling us he has a better plan to fix our broken, wayward hearts, but we have to be willing to look within, to mourn about what's happened to us, yes, but also to answer for the grace that we've been shown. We have to admit that we're helpless to save ourselves, to surrender to the only captain worthy of our devotion and trust. In fact, you know, Charles Spurgeon and others make this point, and Pastor Colton made the, the point last week. It's no accident that poverty of spirit comes before mourning. Poverty of spirit, as Spurgeon said, is essential to the seceding characters, underlies each one of them, and is the spoil in which they can be produced alone. No man, no woman ever mourns before God until that person is poor in spirit. So yes, we can agree that blessed are those who realize the true state of their hearts, who mourn over their disregard for God. As a doctor, I, I know that heart surgery can be painful, but it's awfully good news to learn there's help for our ailing hearts. Jesus has compassion on those held captive by sin and darkness, on the broken hearts and the broken situation. He will bind up their wounds. He will bust them out of that dark, smelly jail cell. How is he going to do that? Well, he will start by giving us, our, our, us a clearer picture of where we stand before God. He wants us to see that, again, our, our hearts are chasing other things. Power, possession, sex, money. He talked about these things many times on this earth. These things are not necessarily bad, but they become bad things when we turn them into ultimate things. When we put them into a place that should be reserved for God alone. It is important to say he is not speaking about the grief we experience over the immediate consequences of our sin. Even non-believers feel bad when they mess up, the trouble that it causes. Jesus is telling his, fathers, or sorry, his followers they will be blessed if they come to a place of seeing their poverty of spirit. If they mourn over the time and opportunities they waste, wasted, over the glory that was not given to God. What's more, they see they are surrounded by other people that are in the same predicament. Jesus often reminded us that we are hurtling towards eternity to condemnation or to pardon, to a forever with God or a heaven where there will be no more sin and sorrow. It's time for us to get our hearts right, to be about Christ's business. Because the kingdom is not only in the future, but it is present right here and now to all, in all those who are surrendered to Jesus. For the kingdom of heaven is anywhere where God reigns.
A beautiful kind of mourning begins as we stand, as Isaiah did, before a holy God. Listen to his words. I said, woe to me, I am destroyed, for my lips are contaminated by sin. I live among a people whose lips are contaminated by sin. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of heaven's armies. Can you see it? We are utterly undone, hopeless to redeem ourselves from sin. I need Jesus, you need Jesus, the Redeemer at the center of our lives. You know, it is truly good fortune. It is a blessing to see things as they truly are, to let go of the lie that I can make life work on my own. And listen, you know, we all go back sometimes to this striving to try and make it work on our own, to this pretense that we can earn our own salvation. But it is a terrible truth, both frightening and exhilarating, that your own righteousness is as dirty rags. It can't cover up all those stains. But good news. Jesus has done it for us. This great gift of realizing we can't do it on our own, that we need to turn to Jesus, is the base camp for growth as a Christian. From this base camp of poverty of spirit and mourning can come, in time, a beautiful meekness, a hunger for righteousness, a merciful spirit, spirit a pureness, a peaceful serving heart. The third question I wanted to address is, how, can we be com- how are we comforted when we mourn over sin. In short, we are comforted by the gospel. When we let go of this fruitless notion that we can justify ourselves and our behavior, that we can remain the captain of our souls, we let go and accept the free gift of forgiveness that could not, we could not buy and we could not earn. What a comfort it is to cease our grasping and just live in gratitude. 2 Corinthians 7.10 reminds us that godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow only brings death. You know, this is a good test to see if your sorrow and repentance is about Jesus, or is it still about you? Does it lead to joy with no regrets, or does it lead to more sorrow? You may recall that earlier I suggested that helpful mourning can be a way in which we let go of something so we are able to reinvest in something else. You know, it brings to mind that that quote we've often heard from Jim Elliott, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Most of you will recall some time, maybe in your childhood, when you had done something wrong, 
some little lie had turned into a bigger and bigger lie and you, your conscience was eating you up. You, you knew you needed to come to your parents and fess up. When you came clean, oh, what relief. And maybe you've had an incident more recently where you needed to confess something to a friend, a loved one, maybe your spouse. May I humbly suggest that it starts with bearing your soul to God. No spinning the truth, no, but otherwise I'm a pretty good person. That we might ask, as David did in Psalm 139, Search me, God, know my heart, test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. When we stand before God, convicted by the Holy Spirit, our hearts, our motives are laid bare. For there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed and nothing concealed that will not be brought to light. There's no shading of the truth. There would be no reason, as God knows the depths of deceit of my heart anyway. Yet, he pursues me in love. He pursues you in love. You know, I recall a day, it was, we were living just down the street on Tenniswood, and I was the only one home, and I got a call from Winnipeg that my dad was going to hospital and that he was not doing well, that I should get on a plane if I wanted to see him again, if I wanted to talk to him again in person. And I remember hanging up that phone and literally falling down on my knees. And I just said, oh God, I don't want to lose my dad. Not now. And so that was my initial mourning, but it quickly moved to, oh Lord, I have so many things I need to tell him. I need to tell you. I need to confess the times that I was proud and arrogant with my dad. The times where I, as a Christian, did not witness well to him. You know, but and, and that time and other times where I've been really convicted of my sin, and when I've confessed the state of my heart, I've experienced not condemnation, not self-pity, but overwhelming love, forgiveness. I want to sing amazing grace at the top of my lungs. Brenda needs to close the windows so I don't scare the neighbors. I want to fall on my face and worship. A few months ago, I was reading Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly. Colton again referred to it last week. Great book. It is focused on this heart of Jesus towards sinners and sufferers. Its title is taken directly from Jesus' only description of his own heart. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble or lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. One statement Ortland made really made an impression on me. If the actions of Jesus are reflective of who he is most deeply, we cannot avoid the conclusion 
that it is the very fallenness which he came to undo that is most irresistibly attractive to him. The cumulative testimony of the four Gospels is that when Jesus Christ sees the fallen of the world all about him, his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct, is to move towards sin and suffering, not away from it. Well, you know, and it, that should not have been a great revelation to me, and yet I realized that, as Ortland went on to suggest, that I have this tendency to sometimes view God as distant and parsimonious, that he would not expend his resources on me, and yet this is the loving God who sent his son to die for me. I sometimes see God through my own miserly eyes. And I, I was thinking about it. I sometimes address my own sin in that way, minimizing it, thinking that I can push it down and handle it on my own. My friend Leroy, who I play tennis with regularly, reminds me we need to just keep asking, keep inviting God in. What is needed is to bring it to the light of God's presence, to remember that he has already given us the pearl of great price, that our repentance comes both from a clearer picture of sin and remembering the ransom that was paid on our behalf. And true repentance leads to a closeness of God that is an incredible comfort, a comfort that is accompanied by a realization that God is not distant and parsimonious, but he is approachable and gracious, that he desires to spend time with us, with me, with you, daily, to be in his word daily, that we might become a blessing to others. The, the message paraphrases 1 John 1, 9 this way. We sang it in one of our hymns earlier. If it, or, no, Gerald referred to it in his prayer. If we admit our sins, simply come clean about them. He won't let us down. He'll be true to himself. He'll forgive us our sins and purge us of all wrongdoing. And it turns out he will do it again and again and again. We need to keep coming to God. Keep mourning. It's time spent with God that changes our hearts. So to conclude, three questions. Why do we mourn? Number one, we mourn when we lose something we value, we see as valuable. We mourn most deeply over the loss of relationship. We mourn to give our hearts an opportunity to reinvest. Number two, how can we be blessed when we mourn? We are blessed when we mourn before God, with God's word open before us so that we can deal with the selfishness of our heart, our pride, our lack of compassion, our unwillingness to forgive. So we mourn so that we might surrender more of our hearts to God till the resemblance to our Savior becomes more and more unmistakable. 
then we can become agents of blessing and reconciliation. Thirdly, we mourn. How are we comforted when we mourn over sin? Mourning allows us to make heart changes, to reinvest our love. And therefore, as Pastor Harry has often reminded us, better a house of mourning than a house of feasting. That's where we do business with God. Jesus has promised to bind up the brokenhearted, to set us free from the captivity of sin, to give us a purpose, a new heart. He promises to lead us to springs of living water, to wipe every tear from our eyes. So seek and find him. He will comfort you. Dear Lord, convict us over the true state of our hearts. May we not be mourning over our injured pride, the loss of some worldly thing. May we mourn over the loss of relationship to you. Ever though, there are those here, Lord, today who, who have never known you, have never known that relationship. May they seek you today while you may be found. May we keep short accounts with you, Lord. Confess our sins daily. Walk with you daily. Thank you that you've promised to forgive us, to bind our broken hearts, to bestow on us a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair.